Hi, my name is uh, Greg. The Old Testament reading is found in Ecclesiastes 11:7 through 12:8 from the message. Light is sweet, and it pleases the eye to see the sun. However many years anyone may live, let them enjoy them all. But let them remember the days of darkness, for there will be many. Everything to come is meaningless. You who are young, be happy while you are young, and let your hearts give you joy in the days of your youth. Follow the ways of your heart and whatever your eyes see, but know that for all these things God will bring you into judgment. So then, banish anxiety from your heart and cast off the troubles of your body, for youth and vigor are meaningless. Remember your Creator in the days of your youth, before the days of trouble come and the years approach when you will say, I find no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars grow dark and the clouds return from after the rain, when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men stoop, when the grinders cease because they are few and those looking through the windows grow dim, when the doors of the street are closed and the sound of the grinding fades, when people rise up at the sound of birds but all their songs grow faint, when people are afraid of heights and of dangers in the streets, when the almond tree blossoms and the grasshopper drags itself along and desire no longer is stirred. Then people will go to their eternal home and mourners go about the streets. Remember him, before the silver cord is severed and the golden bow is broken, before the pitcher is shattered at the spring and the wheel broken at the well and the dust returns to the ground it came from and the spirit returns to the God who gave it, Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Everything is meaningless. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Sue. The New Testament reading is found in 2 Corinthians 5, 6 through 10. Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. We live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive what is due them for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Lindsay Kirchhoff. Thank you for standing for the gospel reading. It is found in Matthew 7, 24 to 27. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. The Gospel of the Lord. Let's get to remain standing for a minute so we go before the Lord in prayer. Jacob said, uh, surely God is in this place, and I wasn't aware of it. Life before you, Lord, I think is probably a progressive um, 
journey of becoming more aware of your presence, of waking up to you who are there in our midst. And um, we're challenged this morning by Ecclesiastes, by an epistle, gospel reading that are trying to nudge us into the heart of the nature of reality. And um, sometimes that's hard to grasp, but there's wisdom here. And so I pray, it's kind of an absurd thing, you know, we, at the end of our weekend, we come into a high school gymnasium and we read two, three, four thousand year old ancient letters and documents to try to hear the voice of God. But we believe that you have spoken and you continue to speak through them. And um, somehow you have wisdom for us for the lives that we do live now. And there's something abiding in these texts. And so... Uh, God, we're praying for light and for help and for wisdom. Jesus, you said that your father um, was a home for us and that you were making a home for us in him. And so we pray this morning as we do open up the scriptures and as we continue to sing and come to the table of communion, that we'd find our way into the heart of God, to the heart of reality, that we'd make our home there. And that all the things that cause us fear and anxiousness and worry, that those things would drop away and that the one thing that is supposed to remain does remain for us and that we'd set our meter towards you so as we open up these scriptures and as we uh, preach a little bit and continue on with our gathering we pray oh lord that the words of our mouth and the meditation of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight O oh lord our strength and our redeemer in the name of the father and the son and the holy spirit and all god's people said amen you can have a seat It's nice to see you this morning. How are you? There's the, the liturgical Sunday morning 9 a.m. murmur. Very good. Um, my name is Andrew. Um, I'm the teaching pastor at a church a little bit up the road in Denver, Colorado, Bloom Church. Um, been here before. I was here last summer, actually, Evan mentioned. Um, apparently, I was the first person in the history of New Life Downtown, which is not a long history, to preach in shorts if you were here last summer. I didn't know that that was not okay, but your pastor the night before told me that it had been hot in here and something about skies out, thighs out, and so I just <laughs> decided to bring the noise. But I'm glad to be back. Um, my mom always tells me I'm supposed to say something about myself before I speak, and so I hail from Wisconsin. Do we have any Wisconsin natives here? Yes. And then I spent some time in Oklahoma. I went to ORU for my undergrad. Any ORU grads, alumni, Tulsa people here? There's a few of you. Great. Yes. All right. See, we're building rapport with the crowd. And then I went to Chicago for a few years at graduate school there. Anybody from Chicago in the building this morning? See, there's a few of you. Back down to Oklahoma for a few more years. And we moved out here about six years ago. And um, I just love Colorado with all my heart. It's an amazing state. Driving up 85 this morning to come up to Colorado Springs was breathtakingly beautiful. And uh, it's a joy to be here. You know, the New Life Downtown thing is so similar to what we are kind of as a community up in Denver. Um, liturgical, trying to find our footing in the ancient rhythms and practices of the church and then figure out what, if anything, that means for today. Um, so it's always fun for me. It's been fun for you to watch the journey of this um, and to sort of compare notes with your pastor, um, Glenn. And really the broader New Life communion is such a fun thing, and I am going to call it a communion. It's such a fun thing for um, 
For me, um, I grew up in a tradition in which new life kind of figured prominently as sort of from the non-denominational charismatic world. And so um, to have friends kind of in this church, I got a chance to do um, lunch with your senior pastor, Brady Boyd, a few weeks ago. And you guys have just an embarrassment of riches here uh, in this community as far as leadership is concerned. And um, you should just feel blessed. It's a canopy of care and um, of clarity and of purpose that is unique, I think, among churches in North American Christianity. So uh, good on you for that, and I hope that you enjoy it and embrace it. Um, I did, uh, I preached on Ecclesiastes uh, a few years ago at Bloom, like Evan mentioned, and uh, I have no idea whether the people that I preach for every week enjoyed it. Um, I loved it. It was one of the favorite messages or a series of messages that I'd ever preached. In particular because uh, it was intellectually stimulating and very challenging. And uh, I loved every week kind of wrestling with the naughty little riddles and mysteries of Ecclesiastes and trying to find, like, what is the heart of this thing? And then bring it to bear in preaching. And... Um, when I came to the end, that series, I think, lasted about four months or so, which probably most people in my congregation thought was entirely too long. But for me, it was a real, um, it was a journey of formation for me. And I came to the end of it, to the end of the book, and um, I made a, a series of commitments on the basis of what I thought Ecclesiastes um, was teaching that um, I want to preach on a little bit this morning. I'm not going to get to it right away. I'll sort of share some of those commitments at the end. But uh, it's neat to kind of be here at the end. And um, this text that we just read from this morning, um, you know, remember uh, him before the silver bowl is shattered, you know, and all of that stuff. Uh, there's something about Ecclesiastes that kind of defies our usual way that we think about what church preaching should be. You know, we read these like incredibly morose <laughs> and sort of depressing um, little riddles in Ecclesiastes, and then it's so, so great that the church forces you to respond with, this is the word of the Lord, thanks be to God, and you're a little bit like, I'm not really so sure about that, but fine, thanks be to God, you know, and, but you find that it's forming you. I had uh, the good privilege when I was young of growing up uh, in a community of people that, in retrospect, I really would consider saints. Um, people that knew God really well. And um, I started coming into my own as far as faith was concerned in high school. And uh, my senior year of high school, I started dating um, the lady who would later become my wife. Now we're celebrating 15 years this August. So it was a long time ago. And, um, but I'm not that old. I'm 34. So you can do the math. It was legal, but barely. And, um, and as we were starting to date, my mom thought that it would be really wise for us, or she kept like pressuring us, pressuring us to go visit this um, very, 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 very elderly lady in our congregation named Ola Zagarek. It's a good Wisconsin name. And Ola was this lady who was widowed when she was about 60 years old and had something of a relationship with God up until that point. But when she was widowed, when her husband passed away, she decided to give herself over to the Lord in this like really profound way, and she did. And so for years, I think she was probably 90 or so maybe when we sat down with her. So when I say very, very, very elderly, I mean it. She was pretty old. And she'd really given herself over to the Lord and um, just had this unique presence. And um, just so that you have an adequate visual, um, Ola was about this tall. 
And she's a little withered old lady. And yet there were all of these stories that kind of collected around her that were really fantastic stories. And they weren't going to make it to the front of any magazines because nobody cares what's happening in cities like Marshfield, Wisconsin, which is where I'm from, 18,000 people. But they were these remarkable stories. One in particular, um, Ola one day, as the story goes, she had spent the morning praying and she needed to run to Shopco um, to get something. And so she went into a Shopco and the presence of God was so rich and was so thick on her that day that uh, as she was like working through the aisles, finding whatever she needed, people started falling over. Now, the technical scientific term for this is slain in the spirit. You know what that means? That people being so overwhelmed at the power of God coming off of this little lady that she started falling over. Now, most of you, if you, I'd say that somewhat tongue in cheek, the slain in the spirit thing, those of you that come from the tradition in which you know what that means, you also know that most people, if they had, that came from that tradition, if they'd walked into a store and people started falling over under the power of God, um, they try to lead some kind of revival crusade thing. You know, oh, this is something that's happening here. Dear people, repent and believe the word of the Lord. You know, it's some healing thing and there'd be this whole... And instead, Ola was so embarrassed by it that she turned around and she ran out of the store. <laughs> you know? I can't let that happen. You know, God, what are you doing here? This isn't right. You know, but that was Ola's life. This little unassuming old lady who somehow the power and the presence of God was so rich on. And so we went and saw her one day. And I never, I knew about Ola, um, but I never really spent any time with her. And so we sat across this table from her in her little apartment, which was probably 600 square feet or something, it was tiny, and full of all the little trinkets and stuff of her life. And we sat down at the table with her, and she just opened the scriptures and started talking with us. And I don't remember a single thing that she said, but I do remember, um, I remember the feeling of like palpable eternity that was sort of rushing off of her. And you could see it in her eyes and in her whole countenance that there was something of the, um, the Hebrew word for glory in the Old Testament is kavod, weightiness. There was something of a weightiness to her life that was really profound. And I thought, how is it that you get there? Yeah, 90 years old, most people are sort of running out of steam. You know, their flesh and their body and their mind are growing dim. Um, and while some of those physical processes were happening for her, the light of her life was growing brighter and brighter. And how do you get there? What does that look like? And um, I do think that Ecclesiastes provides a really powerful clue into how you do that. Speckled throughout Ecclesiastes are all of these what theologians would call or Bible scholars would call carpe diem passages. Seize the day, you know, because we live in this existence that's vaporous, vapor, vapor, havel, havel, meaningless, meaningless, you know, everything is meaningless. And so the writer is constantly saying in the midst of this havel, this vapor in which everything is going to dust, smoke, it's all passing away, you know, what can you do? And so the writer is saying constantly, hey, you need to seize the day, even in the passage that we read from this morning, Ecclesiastes 11 and verse 7, light is sweet and it pleases the eyes to see the sun. You are young, be happy while you are young. And let your heart give you joy in the days of your youth. Follow the ways of your heart. Whatever your eyes See, banish anxiety from your heart and cast off the troubles of your body for youth and vigor are meaningless. It's this like pour yourself into life because it's all going to pot and it's all going to dust and everything that you're working on and everything that we see, it's all falling apart. So what can you do in the moment you have to seize the day? Carpe diem, right? And so in that respect, 
Ecclesiastes bears a lot of resemblance to a sort of philosophical position that I think is characteristic of a lot of people in our age that you might call nihilistic hedonism. I know that it's the 9 a.m. service, but I would like you to try to say nihilistic hedonism with me. You give it a go. One, count of three. One, two, three. Nihilistic hedonism. Intelligent crowd. Nihilism, just meaning that at the end of the day, you don't really believe that the universe is about anything or that there's any kind of supervening logic that pulls it all together. And so you just think that all that we see is all there is. And if it goes to dust, meaning goes to dust with it. Nihilism. And so that really is a strong cultural milieu that we have. A lot of people despair um, about whether or not there is some kind of ultimate transcendent meaning to the universe. And because of that, they live their lives, therefore, in a hedonistic way. Pleasure is the ultimate good. So if it's all going to pot, if it's all going to fall apart, what can you do? Eat and drink, right? For tomorrow we die. And so when you read Ecclesiastes through the first time, it really feels like that, that the guy is kind of a, uh, an early 21st century um, hipster uh, living in downtown Denver, um, wearing skinny jeans and, you know, interesting glasses and drinking organic and fair trade coffee and all of that, lamenting that the universe has no meaning. And, and you just kind of get dragged into that. And you go, look, I got a life to live. You know, like, I can't, I can't do that with you. But the truth is that Ecclesiastes actually, the writer of Ecclesiastes sees beyond that. And part of what he's doing in those carpe diem moments is trying to anchor us in something deeper. When I preached through this book for our congregation several years ago, as I got towards the end of it, a good friend of mine um, asked me, and he was enjoying the series immensely. And he said, Andrew, um, you know, I've been reading through Ecclesiastes and enjoying your series and all that. He says, do you think that Kohelet, the writer, the teacher of Ecclesiastes, do you think that he believes in the afterlife? And at that point, I said to him, I'm really not sure. But then when you start coming in for a landing at the end of the book, you see that the horizon of this writer stretches out beyond this present life. And it's that stretching out of the horizon beyond the present life that actually shapes our engagement in the present. Listen to this, Ecclesiastes 11 and verse 8. However many years anyone may live, let him enjoy them all, but then let them remember the days of darkness, everything to come. He starts talking about everything to come. Verse 9, you who are happy, young, be happy while you're young. Let your heart give you joy in the days of your youth. Follow the ways of your heart and whatever your eyes see, but know that for all these things... So in the midst of the carpe diem, the seizing of the day, he says, but know that for all of these things, God is going to bring you into judgment. Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 1. Remember your creator in the days of your youth before the days of trouble come and the years approach when you will say, I find no pleasure in them. Remember him, verse 6, before the silver cord is severed and the golden bowl is broken, before the pitcher is shattered at the spring and the wheel broken at the well. Then listen to this. And the dust returns to the ground it came from, and the Spirit returns to God who gave it life. Does Kohelet believe in the afterlife? Does he believe in something beyond the sun, beyond the dust, beyond the vapor? You'd better believe it. And part of what he's doing in his challenges to us and his naughty riddles to us is he's trying to get us to grow up into this maturity of understanding about the world that we live in 
so that inwardly we begin to set our meter towards God and towards what is real rather than, rather than towards what is false. Are you with me? This is the point of this book. The entire point of this book is that this teacher, Kohelet in Hebrew, has this group of students in front of him, many of whom have been instructed in the rudiments of wisdom, the ABCs, but now he's trying to instruct them in the finer points, the deeper lessons of wisdom, because he wants to lead them into nothing less than the heart of reality. There was a missiologist in the middle of the late part of the 20th century by the name of Paul Hebert. And Hebert, a missiologist, is a person that just studies missions worldwide and then how does the gospel interact with cultures and all of that. And Hebert was wrestling with the question of how is it that we help people in other cultures move towards an understanding of God? And are the models that we use in church life really effective in helping us make sense of what's actually going on in a person's heart? And he came up with this model that I think is really, really helpful. And it's helpful for us understanding not just missiology, but I think, as I've sat with this over the years, I was introduced to this about 10 years ago. um, This is a really helpful way, actually, to think about spiritual formation. It's a helpful way to think about spiritual development. And I think it maps on perfectly to what Kohelet, the teacher, is trying to tell us. I want you to put the first slide up on the screen. This is a bounded set. I want to let you know that I drew this. Uh, art skills. I do not have an embarrassment of riches there. Um, but this is a bounded set. And what Hebert argued for is that he said, you know, most Christians, the way that we think about religion is in terms of bounded set thinking. So you can see there that there's a thing that approximates a circle. <laughs> like a semi-deformed, upside-down egg, but be that as it may, that there's a circle, there's a boundary. And most of what we try to do in life is we try to figure out who's inside the boundary and who's outside the boundary. And that helps us divide up the world into a way that we understand. So the people who are in this room, they have um, ostensibly, they have uh, assented to our doctrinal statement, they've gotten baptized, they've said the sinner's prayer, Okay, now we know they are in and everything's fine. But then those people out there, they haven't jumped through the religious hoops that we need them to jump through. So they haven't done these things. And whatever it is, you know, different religions, traditions, denominations, they all reckon this in a different way. Because I think this is a human phenomenon as much as anything else. But all of these people on the outside, uh, they really haven't made this decision or they haven't done that thing or they haven't jumped over. So they're not okay. And Hebert said, look... There's something about bounded set thinking that is okay, because on a sociological level, on a human level, we do kind of need things to try to figure out, wait, are you with us? Are you part of us? And we do need things to try to understand, wait, oh, okay, so you're not, you're not exactly with our group. But he says the gaping flaw of this model is that it cannot and it does not account for the actual directions or the trajectories of a person's life. Next slide. He said, the thing that it cannot show you is which direction any of these people are going. And so some of the people that are on the outside of the set, those people in the top right corner, they are actually moving inward. While some of those people that are inside the circle, uh, some of them are moving outward. Some are moving inward. Some are moving in God knows which direction. But he said, we need models that do a better job of helping to understand what is the actual direction of a person's life. And he said, bounded set thinking won't get us there. The thing that can get us there, next slide, is what he called centered set thinking. 
I'm sorry for how terrible this is. Please forgive me. But he says at the center of all things is the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And while we do have the sort of permeable boundary on the outside that helps us understand whether people are in or out in some loose way, he said the most important thing to try to figure out is what direction is a person going? Are they journeying more and more into the heart of reality? And are they becoming the kinds of people that can exist forever in the heart of reality? Or are they journeying more and more to the outside, to the outskirts of reality? Are they journeying more and more into what many of the great theologians of the church would call non-being? Are you with me? See, the question that Ecclesiastes is posing for us, you've maybe noticed as you've been going through this book, that at no point does the writer of Ecclesiastes stress out about whether or not you've hopped over the religious boundaries. You know, he said, it's my gum for later. Put that back. Okay, have you said the sinner's prayer? You're okay. Have you gotten baptized? You're okay. Have you gone through the catechism class for youth at New Life Downtown? You know, it doesn't stress out about that. What it does stress out about is the kinds of people that we are becoming in the midst of the Havel, in the midst of the vapor. Dallas Willard put it so brilliantly when he said this. He said, we are becoming the kinds of creatures that we will forever be. We are becoming the kinds of creatures that we will forever be. Now you just think about that for a second. Because the great problem with boundary thinking is that once you cross that artificial sociological man-made boundary, all of a sudden now you begin to ease any feelings of existential wrong or guilt or whatever, issues of character don't need to come into play anymore because what does it matter? I crossed the line. I'm going to be okay. And maybe life with Christ is more than crossing a line. Maybe life with Christ is about what we read from in the gospel passage earlier, that there are going to be a lot of people who will say, Lord, Lord, did we not this and that? And he says, get away from me. I didn't, I didn't, I don't know who you are. Or even more, there are some foolish persons who built their life on the sand. They built their life on the vapor. They built their life on the things that were passing away. And there were some wise persons that the trajectory of their life was going towards God. And so they found a way to build their lives on what was real rather than what was not real. And because of that, they can live forever in God's good world. We are becoming the kinds of creatures that we will forever be. The choices that we make today... They speak to the kinds of people that we are becoming. And are we becoming the kinds of people who can live forever in the kingdom of God? Or are we becoming the kinds of people that when the kingdom of God does come crashing to earth, will hate it, seared by the light of its goodness? See, this is deeper than just religion. This is about reality. And this point was really hammered home to me, uh, oddly enough, uh, not too long after I had finished this Ecclesiastes series at our church, one of the guys in our church, a leader with us, uh, house church leader, we have a network of house churches, it's kind of our community structure, at Bloom, 
wanted to get together with me. And so we sat down and um, we're talking. And he said, man, I just, um, I have some concerns about Bloom. I go, okay. No pastor ever wants to hear that. I have some concerns about Bloom. I go, okay. And he goes, I just want you to hear this the right way. He goes, when we came to Bloom a few years ago, he said, Bloom was very much, it felt like it was about the community. We had this robust liturgy that was pointing us to Christ. And um, your voice was an important voice in that. But it was about the whole of it, you know. He said, and as you've gone through this Ecclesiastes series, I've noticed that your messages are getting longer and longer. And he said, and I just feel like, and I just want you to hear this because I'm saying this to you out of a good heart. He goes, I just feel like this church is becoming about you and about your preaching gift. Now, this was a few years ago. And I do, I remember, uh, the reason that it's so, it startled me and was hard for me to swallow. Because as a young preacher, you're constantly trying to prove yourself. And so you want people to like you and you want to deliver those messages that deliver this huge payload to people and you want to just really wow them. And I remember during that series, people from, for some reason, people were tweeting it and Facebooking it. And so I was getting emails from people around the country (laughs) Oh, your messages on Ecclesiastes are just so good and they're changing my life and all of this. And I'm feeling this inward sense of validation. And as I feel this inward sense of validation about these messages, you know what's happened in my messages? They're growing, <laughs> getting longer and longer. Because this moment, this is like my platform, right? This is my thing and I'm trying to teach. And people are being helped and ministered to by this gift. And the messages are just growing and I'm loving them and I'm in my element, and the closer I got, back in those days, the closer I got to an hour of hours worth of preaching, the better I did, and I was constantly sort of creeping up against this, and here I've got a leader saying to me, you have a choice to make. Your gift is a great gift, and it does amazing things, but when it's out of proportion to the rest of what's happening in the church, it's hurting the church. We are becoming the kinds of creatures that we will forever be. And so I had to think long and hard, God, am I going to be the kind of Christian leader whose gift eclipses all other gifts in the church and butts all other gifts out of the screen? Or am I going to be like you are? Because the truth is that for all of God's glory, God is humble And God's gift is not a gift that pushes the rest of us out of the screen, but God's gift is a space-creating gift. You notice that for all God's power, for all of his might, for all of the actualization of God's person, you all belong here, and your gifts belong here. And his, who he is, as the supreme deity of the universe, does not mow us over or pave us over or push us out, but instead it allows us to rise. And I thought, if I want to be as he is, and I am becoming the kind of creature that I will forever be, then there's an important choice that I have to make here. And I can't use this space anymore as a space of self-validation, this preaching space. It's just not going to work. I'm going to have to find my validation in God, and I'm going to have to preach in such a way that it allows other gifts to rise. It's one example of many. I'm sure in your own life you could multiply examples of this. So the question is, in our own lives, see, that's the thing, that my preaching is going to dust. 
The church that we're building is going to dust. This church is going to dust. Every church is going to dust. All the stuff that we're working on, it's all going to dust. But in the midst of it, the decisions that we make, those are the things that will last because they speak to the kinds of persons that we will forever be. Are you getting the message that I'm saying to you? Dallas Willard, once again, said it like this. He was asked one time about, he was actually asked frequently um, questions about who God lets into heaven. And one time he answered it like this, that God will let into heaven anyone who can possibly stand it. God will let into heaven anyone who can possibly stand it. And do you know what he's getting at there? He's getting at the fact that when we think about heaven, when we think about everlasting communion with God, we think about the sociological barriers that we've jumped over. We don't think about what God is. There's this great moment in one of the prophets where the prophet says, who of us can stand the eternal fire? Who can dwell with the everlasting burning? He's talking about God. And you expect him to answer the question in the negative. Oh, of course, nobody. And then you know what he says? He says, it's the people who do what's right who walk with God, that somehow what happens is their souls, their being is outfitted in such a way that it actually can dwell with God forever. We are becoming the kinds of creatures that we will forever be. And are we aware of that? Are we living in a way that's consistent with that conviction? Because the truth is that that's even written into the gospel. Have you noticed that any of the final judgment scenes of scripture, when you read the New Testament, None of them are asking whether or not you've jumped over the sociological hurdle. What they're asking is whether you know the Lord. Everything hangs on that question. When I got to the end of this series um, I did for my church, these questions about character were so present to me, and I didn't want to lose the moment. And so in the week before I preached the last message to my church, I decided to sit down and just write up a sort of declaration that I thought encapsulated some of the challenges of Ecclesiastes. And so there are 16 commitments that I wrote up here. And I'll go through them pretty quickly, but what I want you to do, and what these 16 commitments do is they summarize a lot of the challenges of Ecclesiastes. And so what I'm going to invite you to do as you begin to prepare your hearts for communion, really, is to use this as a moment of self-examination. So I'll invite you to close your eyes and just kind of get comfortable And listen as I read these commitments to you and see if you can't find yourself somewhere in the midst of them. The title of the document is, I Will, a declaration from a creature cognizant that he or she will live forever. Question, what does a man gain from all his labor? Ecclesiastes 1.3. Answer, a fitness for everlasting communion with God. Seen in this way, Ecclesiastes reads something like Pilgrim's Progress. Everything that we experience has the the character of a test designed to chisel and shape us, not unlike the wilderness wanderings of Israel. Will we throw in the towel and cave in to the twistedness of life? Will we cower in fear or take the coward's way out by trying to avoid all of it? Or will we fear God and keep his commandments right in the midst of the vapor, knowing that all of life is a crucible And we are being prepared, whether we realize it or not, for an unending existence in God's world. For my part, commitment number one, I will not despair nor rise up in insolence, but will bless God 
the giver of the days and the months and the seasons and the years, savoring the repetitiveness of it all as a gift that stabilizes and orients me. Number two, I will not make an idol out of pleasure, but will receive it also as a gift and know each pleasure of life to be what it is, a God-given, if limited, pathway to creaturely joy. Commitment number three, I will not make an idol out of my work, but instead will do what is in front of me to do with skill and grace for the common good and with thanksgiving, knowing full well that it is all eventually going to dust. Number four, I will not make an idol out of certitude, but will relax as I find myself enfolded by mysteries around, above, and beyond me. Number five, I will not get derailed in my soul by the perils of community, culture, and social life, but will instead keep my eyes on God and my feet moving. Number six, I will not mouth empty, boastful, manipulative words before God and others, but will instead live quietly and speak truthfully, knowing that I'm already loved and already safe in God's good world, and no amount of talking will ever add to that. Number seven, I will not make an idol out of riches, nor freight wealth with hopes and expectations that is simply not capable of bearing, but will instead be open-hearted, open-handed, and deeply generous. Number eight, I will not fear death, but will instead make it a pathway to wisdom that transforms my life now and fills it with nobility and dignity, paradoxically making the reality of death a gateway to life. Number nine, I will not wither in the face of my own moral ineptitude, but will instead give myself over completely to God, who himself is the good and the one who leads me into all good. Number 10, I will not grow cynical or jaded at corrupt authority and broken systems, but will instead keep fearing God and sowing what I believe is right into the system, entrusting the outcomes to him who calls himself heaven and earth's only sovereign and Lord. Number 11, I will embrace the moment that I'm in right now, always, seizing the day, sucking the marrow out of each experience of life because life, even if vaporous, is good and God-given. Number 12, I will not lose sleep over living in a morally upside-down world, but will do my best personally to live a life of wisdom, authenticity, and integrity. Number 13, I will not grow weary of the complexity and subtlety of life under the sun, but will instead use it as an opportunity to grow in moral and spiritual refinement and clear-mindedness. Number 14, I will not shrink back from the uncertainty of life, but will instead throw myself gladly and wholeheartedly into it, casting my bread upon the waters wherever and as often as I can, knowing that my role in the story is secure because the storyteller has promised it and made it so. Number 15, I will, in all things, And at all times, remember that I am a creature called to live forever in everlasting communion with God and that the choices I make today, how I handle each of the above challenges, directly impacts whether or not I will become such a creature and what sort of creature I shall become, a creature radiant with the glory of God or one withered and shrunken and darkened forever by folly. Number 16, I will fear God and keep his commandments knowing that this is the alpha and the omega of what it means to be human. Amen.